Um, like Charlie said, my family and I have been here for at Grace for quite a while. My uh, husband, Ryan, and our girls were at first service, um, and he actually proposed to me in this very room over in that corner 11 years ago this month, and obviously I said yes. <laughs> so our um, roots at Grace as a family go deep. <laughs> We have two girls, Carly and Maggie. Carly is in first grade and Maggie is three and a half. And Carly came home from school the other day uh, saying, Mommy, everybody at school knows about Harry Potter except for me. I have to learn about Harry Potter. Now, the Harry Potter books started coming out when I was in high school, so Harry Potter and all of the characters have been part of my literary life through high school and college, and this is a parenting moment I have been waiting for for almost 20 years. And of course, like a good millennial parent, I took a selfie to document the occasion. And because I love books, I also follow the commandment of do not see the movie until you've read the book, right? So Carly and I started reading the books before she gets to see the movie. And so we jumped into the first one, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And she's very excited about it, asks all the time, Mommy, can we read more Harry Potter? And as we're reading along, we stop regularly to make sure she understands what's happening, make sure she remembers who the characters are, is making connections to all the things she'll need to know as the story progresses. And at one point we stop and Carly says, Mommy, I know what's happening because I can see it happening in my mind. She's imagining what she's reading. And the reading teacher in me is like jumping for joy because that's the sign of a really good reader that they're picturing what's happening. And Ryan and I and my brothers have been reminiscing about Harry Potter since um, Carly and I started reading. And I was telling the story of when the very last Harry Potter book came out, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I was in Spain for a month um, living with a host family and doing some work with the Covenant Church over there. And I had very little hope I would ever find Harry Potter and, De and the Deathly Hallows in English. So I was staying off of Facebook, trying to keep anybody from spoiling the ending. And my friends and I are walking down the sidewalk and go past this tiny little bookshop. And right in the middle of their window display is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows in English. So we, of course, run into the store. I grab the book. It was 30 euros, which is almost 60 US dollars. I have never spent that much money on a book besides a textbook, and I do not regret it one bit. And so I read it slowly, trying to savor it so that I could finish it on the plane ride home. And so I'm flying home from Spain, feeling emotional about that, finishing Harry Potter, crying that everything is over tried to hide it from all the people sitting around me on the plane so I don't look like this emotional wreck that they're trapped in a plane over the Atlantic for hours. Um, and Carly asks me, as I'm telling the story, Mommy, why were you crying that Harry Potter was over? And I said, well, these characters have been with me for so long, I feel like I'm losing close friends. Can anybody relate to that? When you finish a series, a book series, it's kind of sad that it's over. Well, we have a story that is um, even better than Harry Potter. Sorry, J.K. Rowling. But um, it's God's story. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The big idea is that we are invited to participate in God's story both at the communion table and in prayer. 
So God's story is not over yet. It's still happening, although we do know how it ends. We do know that Jesus will come back and all of the pain and the suffering and the death that is a reality now will be no more. We also know that we are invited to participate in this story. And the way we know God's story is because of what is written in the Bible. And the words in the Bible are recorded by people who were participating in God's story. And I think that is huge because they're not narrators standing on the outside observing all of this stuff happening. They are right in the middle of it, getting their hands dirty, experiencing everything that is involved in living life, the pain the joy, the sorrow, the triumph, all of it. They're right in the middle of it all, and they're recording their experience and their understanding of God so that we can join them in this story. Like any good literary work, the Bible also has themes that run through and keep popping up as we read. Themes of gardens, themes of exile being sent away, themes of God bringing people back to where they originally belong. Today, the themes we're going to um, look at are themes of freedom and belonging. And before I start telling God's story, let's pray. Jesus, we are hungry and we are thirsty for more of you. Holy Spirit, please come satisfy us with your loving kindness. Amen. So as I tell this story, um, you know, movie, books are always better because movies leave stuff out. Well, I'm going to be leaving a lot of things out. So um, I encourage you to read the book after we do this super fast flyover of the whole story. <laughs> so God's story starts with in the beginning. And I just love that it's way better than once upon a time, right? <laughs> in the beginning, God created. He created Everything out in space, that's the first thing that we're told. He created stars and planets and galaxies and supernovas and black holes and all of this stuff that astrophysicists are excited about and trying to understand. And even things we don't even know exist out there yet. Then the story zooms in to our planet and God created land. And then he created plants to grow on that land. And then he created animals to live on the land and birds to fly in the sky and fish to swim in the waters. And we look out around all of that and it's all so amazing. And yet the greatest thing God created, the climax of his creation is us. The Bible says God created us as his image bearers. And an author, Howard Thurman, describes it this way. He says that God is in each one of us, a part of our very life structure, and we are in him. I love that, that he's part of our very life structure. My seminary professor describes it as that part of our DNA is also God's DNA. And God did this intentionally. He made us his image bearers because he had a job for us. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and care for it. Our vocation that God gave us, that God created us for, was to tend and care for the rest of his creation. God chose us to be the ones through whom his blessings flow out to the rest of what he's made. 
And notice those verbs that it's to tend and care for. When we do that, it's what we're tending to and caring for grows and becomes fruitful. It gets bigger and stronger. So we know that humanity didn't do a great job with this. Um, Pretty soon after we're given this vocation, we decide to do things our own way. And it starts by taking. Humanity takes the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and says, I'm going to choose for myself what is good and evil. I'm going to define that and not God. And so God says, uh-uh, you don't get to be here anymore then if that's how you're going to act. And he exiles humanity from the garden. And you'd think we would learn and say, okay, God, we'll do it your way, but we are quite stubborn. And instead of going back to tending and caring, we continue on taking and taking and taking and taking. And all this does is create brokenness and pain and hurt and death and suffering. God doesn't leave us stuck in this soupy mess we've made. He tries to restart his flow of blessing through Noah, and then he tries again through Abraham. God chooses Abraham to be the start of a nation. And in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and I will make you a blessing to others. So God is choosing Abraham and all of his descendants to be a nation that blesses others, a nation of priests. So these priests are going to be like mediators between God and the rest of humanity and creation, through whom God's blessing will flow, through whom the tenderness and the caring that makes creation thrive will come. So Abraham and his descendants multiply and multiply and multiply until they are a great nation, only they're enslaved in Egypt. They're experiencing bitter, bitter oppression. They're being forced to work in inhumane situations, building these structures for Pharaoh. They're experiencing genocide. Their newborn baby boys are supposed to be thrown in the Nile River because Pharaoh is so fearful of the Israelites multiplying to a point that he can't control them, so he's trying to control their population. And in the midst of all of this, God hears the cries of the Israelites. He hears the suffering that they're experiencing. And so God first rescues Moses, baby Moses, out of the Nile River and chooses Moses first to act as a mediator between God and Israel. Moses grows up and has this amazing experience with meeting God and is given a message to give to the Israelites. And Exodus 6 tells us that God says to Moses, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will free you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with mighty power and great acts of judgment. I will make you my own special people, and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has rescued you from your slavery in Egypt. So here's our themes, freedom and belonging. God promises to the Israelites, I will free you from your slavery in Egypt. And then he promises them belonging. He says, I promise that I will make you my own special people and I will be your God. We will belong to each other. 
So Moses' next job is to act as a mediator between God and Pharaoh. In order for God to deliver on his promise, he has to get Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave. And he does this by sending plagues on Egypt. And before each plague, Moses goes in and warns Pharaoh that this plague is coming. It's things like frogs covering the everywhere, um, gnats, boils, the Egyptians break out in sores, darkness. Um, and before each plague, Moses goes and warns Pharaoh, and Pharaoh still says, no, this, I'm not letting your people go. And then the plague comes. But the plague only comes to Egypt. Goshen, the ghetto where the Israelite slaves live, is spared from all of these plagues. So when it's dark in Egypt, it's light in Goshen. All of these plagues happen and happen and happen, and Pharaoh still won't let the Israelites go. And so finally, the last plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn. And if I'm completely honest, I'm not comfortable with this plague. I don't understand why God uses death to finally change Pharaoh's mind because those Egyptians are God's creation too. But that's how the story goes. And this time, the plague is not just going to pass Israel over. This time, Israel has to do something to spare themselves from this plague of death. And Moses um, gives very specific instructions that the Israelites are to take a perfect lamb and smear their doorposts with the blood and then cook the lamb, roast it, and eat this bread with no yeast um, so that they are nourished for the journey ahead as they are leaving Egypt. This blood over the door is what death sees as it's coming through Egypt and it knows when it sees the blood move on pass over that house death is not to visit there so God uses this moment this Passover to free Israel from their slavery he's delivering on his promise and then after lots of events that you'll have to read about because we're skipping over them um, he settles them in the promised land. But this Passover moment is still like the moment in Israelite history. It is still remembered today. Jewish believers still have a Passover meal where they remember the lamb and the bread and each, each element that they eat or drink has a specific symbol to remind them of this Passover story where they were freed from slavery and made God's people. They do this to remind themselves as adults of the story, but they also do it to remind their kids, just like we had our kids in here, reminding them of God's story. So Israel is set up, they're remembering Passover, and still humanity is not living into our vocation. Still we are taking and breaking and hurting, and God finally says, that's it. I have to just come and do this thing, right? He comes in as the person of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. And through Jesus, Israel knows, and then the rest of humanity and all of creation knows what man was created for, what our job is. 
we know how to live and rule in the kingdom of God because of what Jesus modeled for us. We know how to relate to each other with grace and redemption. We know what it looks like to be an image bearer because Jesus showed us. And we know we can trust what he showed us because Jesus died, but then he rose again. So we know that as hard as it may be to live as an image bearer the way Jesus showed us, that there is an eternal hope and all of the faith and effort that goes into that is worth it. Now, while Jesus was here, he gave us a couple of spiritual practices to help us remember God's story. One is communion and one is prayer. And I want to start with the story of communion. Like Pastor Brian said, we um, at communion, we remember the story of the Last Supper. This is a Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples had in Jerusalem the night before um, Jesus was arrested and then executed. Jesus had been ministering in Israel for about three years, and as time went on, the tension between his work and the Roman government and the religious leaders was getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And Jesus knew that the next time he went to Jerusalem, the center of religious and political life, all of that tension would come to a head and he was going to die. They were going to execute him as a criminal because of what he was teaching and doing. And I believe Jesus intentionally went to Jerusalem at Passover because he wants us to connect his death with Passover. So Jesus and his disciples are celebrating this Passover meal, remembering the story of Exodus, but then Jesus does something out of the ordinary for a Passover meal. Luke tells us, that Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So notice those words, new covenant. Jesus is alluding to the old covenant that was made with Israel at um, the Passover, the promise that God would free them and make them his people. The um, part of the Passover meal, actually, when uh, the Jewish people celebrate it, is they have a cup of wine that they drink for each piece of that promise from Exodus 6. So Jesus is wanting us to connect this old covenant that was just with Israel, the promise of freedom and belonging for the people of Israel. Only now this new covenant is freedom and belonging for everybody because through Jesus Christ, everyone is welcomed into the kingdom of God. Everyone is part of the family. But none of us right now are slaves in Egypt. So what does it mean that we are free and that we belong? The, these, the scriptures for all of these are in your online sermon notes um, if you want to study them later. But first, we're free from being a slave to sin, scripture tells us. We're free from that tendency to take and take and take and only protect ourselves. We're free from the fear of death because we know the promise of eternal life. And we're freed into serving, right? We don't have to take and take care of me because... I'm free from that tendency so that I can serve and take care of other people. 
Romans, um, in Romans, Paul tells us that we are free to set creation free, that creation is waiting for us, the children of God, to come and set creation free. We're also free to be heirs in God's kingdom. I think of this, we're free to participate in God's story. And when we belong, it means that we will be God's people and he will be our God. So we belong to each other and we belong to God. When we come to the communion table, this is what we remember. We take the bread, that's the symbol of Jesus' body, and we take the juice, that's the symbol of his blood, and we put it into ourselves. It's like we're the um, Israelites who smeared their doorpost. We're smearing ourselves, saying, death, move on. And I don't just mean death at the end of our lives. I mean the things that bring death right now, discouragement, loneliness, fear, the desire to be in control, all the things that keep us from our original vocation of tending and caring for each other and for creation. This communion is a family meal that we practice together to remind ourselves we aren't alone in God's story. We're doing this together. Now, the other spiritual practice Jesus gave us was prayer, and he modeled this for us regularly. The Gospels tell us often that Jesus went off by himself to pray. And Howard Thurman, the author I quoted earlier, talks about Jesus reminding himself of God's agenda. Jesus needed to pray to know God's story so that all of the things that Jesus did would be in God's will. Now, my attitude for prayer is not, um, often I don't really know where I am with prayer. Um, I'm going to share a scripture that comes right after the promise in Exodus um, to share with you how I often feel about prayer. So Moses has just told the Israelites God's amazing promise that he's going to free them and make them his people. And Israel said, Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, but they refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. Their situation in life is keeping them from hearing God's promise. They are so overwhelmed with all of the suffering they see around them and that they are experiencing that they can't believe Moses. They're saying, be quiet, Moses, go home. And even though they don't believe, that doesn't keep God from fulfilling his promise. God still takes all of these Israelites who didn't want to listen out of Egypt and still fulfills his promise to them. I feel like those Israelites often when I'm home by myself praying. I'm too discouraged to pray because I see so much suffering around me. I see prayers for healing go unanswered. I see people suffering because medical care isn't available or is too expensive or a treatment for that hasn't been discovered yet. I hear stories of children starving to death while I'm throwing food away, and it doesn't make sense to me. My favorite author, Sarah Bessie, experienced something similar, and she described it that when she prayed, she had run out of words and run out of faith. So when I come to the communion table, I feel not alone. I feel like I belong with all of you and I can feel that God is with me. But then when I go home by myself to pray, I lose that sense of togetherness, that sense of belonging. 
And um, in the same book, Sarah Bessie explained a way of praying that was new to me, but is not actually new. It's called Praying the Hours. And this connects go all the way back to the Jewish practices when Christ was alive. The Jewish believers would go to the temple at particular times of day for the hour of prayer. So the early church adopted this, and it started off as praying the Our Father prayer at particular times of the day. And it slowly grew to what is now called the Liturgy of the Hours, and it's recorded in the Book of Common Prayer, which if you're from a liturgical background, it's the book with all of the ribbons that hang out the bottom, because it's confusing to use. There's all these different parts that you're supposed to go to on particular days. But a woman named Phyllis Tickle made um, a three-volume set of books that has all of those prayers written out for us lay people to just read through on. They're all back-to-back. It's super easy to use. And these um, prayers are made up of psalms and other readings in the scripture and prayers that, are, um, that have been written by believers from hundreds of years ago that are from the Book of Common Prayer. And the hour, the times of day, it starts in the morning and you pray these prayers and it starts, the final prayer is considering, like inviting God, go out with me, go before me as I start my day. And then there's the midday prayer and then an evening prayer and then a prayer right before bedtime. And the before bedtime prayer is a reflection on your day and a please forgive me for all of the ways that I messed up today. And um, it remind me that tomorrow starts anew. As I pray these prayers, I don't feel as alone because I'm connected to all of the people throughout history who have prayed these exact same prayers. But then I'm also connected to people around the world who are praying these. So if I'm praying in the morning in Tucson, someone on the East Coast already prayed the morning prayer. And then they've passed it on and on and on until that morning prayer time comes to Tucson. And I pray it, and then I pass it on to California and then keep going around the world as that time moves. So it's a connection of prayer to other believers today. And um, Sarah Bessie actually says it way better than I do, so I'll just read her quote. She says, I think I draw as much comfort from the knowledge that I am not alone as I pray as I do from the words and discipline itself. When I began to pray the hours, I remembered how to pray. It wasn't just about the discipline or quiet time, as we call it. It was about making my story bigger than myself. It was about getting me out of the center spot in my life and reorienting my heart, my spirit, my mind, my words, and even my time to Jesus Christ. And I needed to be reminded of that bigger story. This, um, so at the communion table, we are reminded of God's bigger story because we remember together Christ's death and resurrection that brings us freedom and belonging until he comes again. In prayer, then I am reminded when I pray the hours that I am not alone, that when I don't have the words to say or the faith to even say them, I have the words and faith of other believers that belong with me other participants in God's story. And this helps to get me out of discouragement and helps me to live into the freedom that Christ the Passover lamb offers. So if we look at some next steps, 
some, the two questions are, what does it mean for you to be a participant in God's story? How can communion and prayer remind you that you are free from all of the things that trap us in this world and that you belong with us and not just us in this room, but the us that's around the world and throughout history? And then, how can embracing God's story bring you freedom and belonging? I'm going to pray for us, and when I finish praying, there's going to be a prayer for all of us to say together, to remind us that we pray together. So let's pray. God, I thank you for your story that is so much bigger than anything we could have imagined. I thank you that you deliver on your promises no matter what our attitude or behavior is. I thank you that you invite us to participate in your story, that you gift us with the privilege of sowing the seeds of your kingdom, even though we see so much suffering and even when we are weeping, that you give us the joy of, um, of planting those seeds and the trust that you will harvest them one day. And for anyone who has not, not ever joined God's story or who wants to rededicate their commitment to that, I invite you to pray these words with me. God, I am sorry for the ways that I have let my story monopolize my thoughts. I am sorry for trying to fit you into my story. And today, God, I want to be a participant in your story. Thank you for that invitation. Thank you that through Jesus Christ I am free from my own story and I can live in yours and that I can belong with the others who participate in that. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. And now let us pray together. Almighty God, you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, participants in your story, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Grant that all of us may be joined together in unity of spirit, belonging to each other and to you. May we accomplish with free hearts those things which you created us to do in tenderness and caring. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.